So we're, this morning, if you saw the email that went out, we're actually going to go back and pick up uh, verses 1 through 6 again, but then we're going to read all the way through verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7. Um, that is one complete unit, as you'll see as we go through it this morning. And again, that's page number 1505. And again, the verses are Matthew chapter 7. And this morning we're looking at verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus continuing to teach his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week, if you were here with us, we talked about judgmentalism. And we tried to sort out the difference between judgmentalism uh, and evaluating other people's beliefs and behavior with love. Um, So this morning, we're going to see that actually this Uh, loving approach to other people's beliefs and behavior is what Jesus is calling us to. And interestingly enough, the very thing that Jesus calls us to do is a thing that we have been convinced in our culture is judgmentalism. And so I I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's sermon. It will definitely help in terms of understanding uh, where we go this morning. And so if someone's beliefs and behavior has them on the road to hell... It is the most loving thing in the world that we can do to speak the truth and love to them. Not as if we're somehow better than they are. No, we do it as fellow sinners. We do it as those who've been rescued ourselves. We do it as those who are still completely and utterly dependent on God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. And so when Jesus commands us not to judge, he actually begins a train of thought that leads to the following conclusion. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. 
And so like Do Not Judge last week, this is another verse that is uh, commonly well-known in Western culture and in our society. And uh, it's usually called the golden rule. This idea is so well-known that most everyone in our culture accepts the idea that we ought to do to others what we would want them to do to us. Most of us, especially those who are not Christians, actually, I imagine we think of the golden rule as something that is true all by itself. Like, no one ever quotes the entire passage from chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 12 to uh, explain the golden rule. We just say, hey, we should treat other people as we want to be treated. And everybody says, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. But this morning what I'd like to do is look at it in its context. Look at it as Jesus meant us to understand it, which is where it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So first, uh, we're going to spend some time understanding the golden rule. That's our first point. And here we're just going to sort out what Jesus means to communicate to his church when he gives them this teaching. And then we're going to look at what motivates the golden rule. So why should we treat other people as we want to be treated? And then finally, we're going to look at keeping the golden rule. So once we wrap our minds around what the golden rule is and why we ought to do it, we're going to talk about how we keep it. Okay? So first, what is the golden rule? The idea of the golden rule uh, is such a part of our society and culture, it probably means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but for most of us, I would say, largely it's just a reminder not to be a mean, selfish jerk. Uh, you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. And so if you want people to be patient and kind and understanding to you, a good strategy is to be patient and kind and understanding with them. I, I used to have a problem uh, with like calling people on the phone, you know, from like big companies. And uh, that really exposed some sin in my heart because I found myself treating this random person on the phone like I would never treat anybody else ever. Uh, and then I realized if for no other reason I should be kind to that person because they don't get paid enough to deal with the way I'm treating them. Uh, so a very pragmatic approach to the golden rule, right? It's a, if anything, it's a good piece of advice to treat that person how you would want to be treated. Uh, if you're a neighborhood criminal and you don't want your fellow neighborhood criminals reporting you to the police, then it's a good idea not to report them to the police, right? Wait a minute, Pastor Patrick. Wait a minute. I don't think Jesus intended this rule to keep neighborhood criminals from telling on each other. This rule is not meant to be used as a selfish way to get whatever we want. But, I would argue, that's exactly how most people use it. In fact, think about everything that we've said so far. If you want people to be nice to you, then you be nice to them. If you want people to be patient with you, then you be patient with them. Notice, that's us behaving in a certain way to get exactly what we want. It's not quite as shocking as neighborhood criminals avoiding being told on by other neighborhood criminals, but it's really the same thing at the end of the day. Now, used in this way, it's not a bad piece of advice. It's good practical wisdom that can be 
applied to a lot of different situations, including for neighborhood criminals. And so the question is this, with the golden rule, is Jesus really just trying to give us practical wisdom so that people will treat us well? Listen to it again. He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Whoa. So if all Jesus had in mind was some practical advice for how to get people to be nice to you, would he say that that advice sums up the law and the prophets? Definitely not. So whatever Jesus means by the golden rule, it must be something so weighty, so soaked in the work of God, the goodness of God, and the character of God, that it can actually be said that this teaching sums up the entire Old Testament and what the Old Testament was about. Changes things, doesn't it, when you think about it that way? Remember all the way back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, what? But to fulfill them. So in chapter 5, verse 17, he talks about how he came to fulfill the law. Fast forward to chapter 7, verse 12, he's telling us now that everything he said sums up the law and the prophets. And in between, he's taken us into the depths of God's law. He's showed us what God requires of us. He's showed us what he's making us into as his citizens in his kingdom by the power of his spirit. Anger is murder. Lustful thoughts are adultery. We must be faithful in our commitments to each other and to the truth. We don't look for loopholes. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. We don't just love our neighbor, we actually love our enemy and we pray for him because we will be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And then in chapter six, we learned that we pray and give and fast, not for show, but to please God. We trust God to take care of us more than our money. And since he promises to provide for us, we have no need to be anxious. And we don't judge each other. We are not to condemn other people as if we're somehow morally superior to them. So whatever it means to do to others what you would have them do to you, it must have something to do with all of that. We also know this because Jesus says this. He says, so in everything. Get the next verse on the screen. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Which means, therefore, given what I have just got done saying, and in everything that pertains to that, do to others as you would have them do to you. Because I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and you doing this sums up the law and the prophets. You don't want people to be angry with you, to lust after you, or to lie to you. And if you were someone's enemy, you would want them to pray for you. And when you fail to do all of that for them, as you certainly will, you don't want them to judge you 
you would want them to be merciful to you and to forgive you. So do to them what you would want them to do to you. And you especially want God to be merciful to you. As we stand under the law, as Jesus explains it here in the Sermon on the Mount, every single one of us falls short. And so we're all coming to God, seeking his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And guess what God does? He just gives it to us. Freely. Come, all you who are hungry and thirsty. So in everything, then, show other people the same mercy God has shown you. And through the power of God's grace, love them without anger or lust or lying, even if they're your enemy. Be generous with your money. Trust God to take care of you. Treat them this way, not because you first want them to treat you this way. That would make it all about you instead of God. But treat them this way because that is the way God has treated you, even though you deserve his anger and wrath. And treat them this way so they too and this is, this is really what this is about. So they too can know the grace and the forgiveness of God. See, the most deep and profound way that those of us who've come to know Christ as Savior want to be treated is how God has treated us. With infinite forgiveness, infinite grace. And the deepest way that we should want someone else to be treated is how we've been treated by God. And so we should treat them in a way that leads to them knowing his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. For this sums up the law and the prophets because that's what the law and the prophets were about, pointing us forward to Jesus who provides all of that to those who believe in him. Okay. So what motivates the golden rule? Um, to summarize our first point, the golden rule is not simply about being nice to people so they are nice to you. It is about being merciful to them as God has been merciful to you. It's about keeping the law from the heart as Jesus described it. And then because we are failures too, it's about refusing to judge others as if we're somehow morally superior to them. And ultimately, it's about wanting them to know the grace of God that has forgiven all of our sins and is empowering us to become more and more like the person Jesus says we already are by virtue of the fact that we're a citizen in his kingdom. But why? What can possibly motivate someone to treat another person this way? It is so much more it is so much more, friends, than just being nice to people so they are nice to us. Look at verses three through five. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So if I'm being nice to people just so they are gonna be nice to me in return, I'm not gonna say anything about that speck in their eye. Not a word. Why? Well, they're not gonna be nice to you if you say something about that speck. In fact, it's gonna make things awkward. They might feel like you're being unloving and judgmental. 
people very rarely respond well to it. So why do it? If they are a brother, which means they are someone who professes the same faith that we profess, and they are caught in a sin that the Bible says places them on a path to hell, what are we supposed to do? Do we just assume that all is well with their soul because they've one time professed faith and the way they're living their life is is meaningless? Do we take the worldly understanding of the golden rule and not mention it to them because we don't want them to mention our sins to us because it's uncomfortable and it makes everything awkward? Or do we love them? Do we take very seriously what the Bible says that sin might actually mean about the state of their soul? Which should cause us to so desperately want them to know the grace of God, right? Because we want them to know what we know. We want to do to them as we would have them do to us. That we're willing to do two very radical things, Jesus says. First, we're willing to put to death our own sin by ripping the giant plank out of our own eye. It starts there. So many times people say, well, I can't say anything to her about her sin. I'm I'm a big sinner myself. And Jesus says, you're right. You're right. So put to death that sin so you can. Do the hard work of ripping the giant plank out of your eye. Confess that sin. Bring it to the light. Do whatever it takes Because the second radical thing Jesus is calling us to do is to take the speck out of our brother's eye. Notice, you've got the plank and they've got the speck. This goes with everything we said last week about not being judgmental, right? If we see ourselves as this person with a giant plank and other people with little specks that are very serious, we work to get that plank. And I I thought about this this week. You guys know the picture of like the iceberg, you know? And you can see just like the t- tip of the iceberg and then you see the ocean line and underneath is this massive depth of whatever. All we can see of each other is the iceberg, right? So, so it's really a speck. And we should, we should think the best of other people that all that they're really dealing with is what we can see in that speck. But with our own selves, we all know the iceberg. And, and we honestly don't know as deep as it even goes. We're worse than we even think we are but we do know some of our pride and our anger. We do know some of our motivations that are always mixed, right? And Jesus is saying, radically attack that so that you can see clearly to take the tip of the iceberg out of their eye. And as we're standing there, this is the picture I have in my mind of our eyes just gushing with blood, right, holding this giant, plank in our hand with tears streaming down our face saying, can I, can I help you? Can I help you with that? And if that's how we're approaching our brothers and sisters who are in sin, they're, they're going to know that we know that we're no better than them. They're going to know that we love them so much that we're willing to do that so that we could help lead them to repentance. This is what holiness, I think, looks like this side of heaven, right? 
It's never going to be this self-righteous, cleaned up person. Yeah, I got it figured out. I obey all the rules. I'm that guy, right? It's always going to be bloodied, bleeding, holding our sin in our hands still. People who are just broken and messed up, but we're in the middle of the battle. Right? But, but we all want, and me included, I'm not different, especially a pastor. It's hard as a pastor, right? Everybody, I mean, I'm really put together, right? It's a, the, the temptation. But we all want to kind of hide our ugly parts. This is what the church is supposed to look like. But instead, we've all decided not to say anything to each other. And we just let each other go on sinning as if it doesn't mean anything, as if sin has no consequences. All because I think we've misunderstood the golden rule and we want to be nice to people so that they're nice to us. But to do this, we also have to know what we believe. We have to know God's word well enough to know when someone's sin places them in danger and when it's just something that we should bear with them in love. And it takes wisdom, it takes knowledge of God's word to know the difference. Paul says this, he says, For of this you can be sure, which means of this, what I'm about to say, you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you. With empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, there are a number of reasons why people slip into immoral and greedy lifestyles without any sign of repentance. It could be weakness, it could be rebellion, or it could be unbelief. And this verse should put a little ice water in our veins because Paul makes it clear here that to continue in a lifestyle like that, we have to deceive ourselves. And Paul seems to believe that that kind of sin and that kind of deception makes unbelief actually a possible reason. But regardless of why anyone begins living like this, every outcome of a lifestyle like this is bad. There's no good outcome of this. And I think sometimes, and, and I've been guilty of this too, I think to myself, well, I know they're a believer, and so I'm just going to let them muddle along. Well, sure, but even if they are a believer, even if they are, even if they have true faith, why would we let them muddle along with that? For them... For the people they love and the people who love them, it's a terrible situation. And what they need more than anything in the world is a brother or sister in Christ who will come along and help them with their speck. And how many of us are willing to do the hard work to take the plank out of our own eye and then to go the extra step to risk our relationship with someone else to take the speck out of their eye? Only real love can motivate this. Because if we wandered off the path into sin and possible unbelief, knowing what we know now about the foolishness of sin and the wonder of God's forgiveness and grace, 
There is nothing we would want more than for someone to love us enough to put to death their own sin and to come to us in humility to help us remove the speck from our eye that we too might turn back to God and again be reminded of his forgiveness and grace and rescued out of the foolish decisions that we would have made had they not interceded for us. And only true love can motivate such, such actions. Wanting people to be nice to us could never motivate this. Which is also why we must share the gospel with unbelievers. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pig, pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So this verse tells us two things. First, this verse just assumes that we're sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. That's just understood. Like, Jesus just accepts that as a brute fact. But it also tells us that there's a time to give up. There is a time where our efforts to help them come to know the Lord becomes unhelpful. And they will literally turn on us. Later, Jesus, talking about the same exact subject, says this. He says, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. So we must boldly share the message with everyone, and we must know when to wisely move on. Now, this whole thing about dogs and pigs, I, I thought about skipping this because it's going to take a little time, but I think for me, like when I read this, I think, boy, Jesus, that sounds pretty judgmental. That sounds pretty mean. Um, it's a really harsh way of describing someone who doesn't know the truth. But I don't think this is a judgmental label. Uh, this is a vivid description of what those who violently reject the gospel have proven themselves to be. So later in Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas are going around and they're sharing the gospel with people. Uh, and they share it with a, a group of Jews. And these Jews reject the gospel. And this is what they say to them. Uh, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, because they're Jews, um, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. So when someone rejects the gospel, they're actually judging themselves to be unworthy. And dogs and pigs is not a label we give people. It is a label they take on by considering themselves unworthy of eternal life. And then just to kind of close this, this is what Peter says. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. And so the picture here is, we're offering them freedom. We're offering them life. We're offering them forgiveness. We're offering them a chance to know God. And they look at it, they scratch their head, and they turn around and eat their vomit instead. That, that's the picture, right? And so this isn't a picture of condemning these people. Oh, you dogs, you. It's a picture of pity. We pity them that they, that they have rejected it. But we have to be wise and know when to move on because they're not gonna just keep eating their vomit. Pretty soon they're gonna say, shut up, and they're gonna come after you. But with Jesus' logic here, the only way to find out if someone is a pig or a dog is to share the gospel with them and see how they respond. To desire them to know the love and the mercy of God that we actually risk their anger. This is what it means to do to them what we would have them do to us. Because if we were an unbeliever, think about it. 
Many in this room, you've known the mercy and the grace of God since before you could even remember. You never once, like I remember when I first met my wife, she, I said, when did you become a Christian? She said, I've always been a Christian. And that's many of your testimony. Now imagine if you were lost and you never knew God. You never walked with him. You never sang some of the songs we sang this morning and you felt your soul moved inside of you by all that Christ has done for you. You would want someone to come and share that message with you. You would just want it. I've heard stories of people who became Christians later in life. And they look back on the Christians they knew in high school or college and they think, why didn't they tell me? Why didn't they tell me? So to properly understand the golden rule, we must see that it is us wanting other people to know the mercy and the grace that we have received from God. If we didn't know God's love and forgiveness, we would want them to stop at nothing to share it with us. And we're motivated not by our own comfort, right? This isn't be nice, so you'll be nice to me. But we're motivated by a deep love for non-Christians to see them turn from their sin and believe the good news of the forgiveness in Jesus' name. And we're motivated by a deep love for our brothers and sisters in Christ to see them endure faithfully to the end with a clear conscience and a consistent Christian testimony. Because that's what we all want for ourselves. More than anything, I believe. But how do we do this? How do we keep the golden rule? Because if you're anything like me, all this seems like a little too much. Starting with what we talked about last week, trying not to judge people, right? To see myself accurately as someone whose life could easily be a train wreck if not for the grace of God. And then to love others well enough that I put to death my anger and my lust and my lies and my unfaithfulness. That I truly love my enemy with a life characterized by prayer and giving and self-discipline. Self that I trust God more than money so that I can rest in Him without anxiety. Right, to live like this, to try living like this, would be like ripping something. I'm imagining this plank just stabbed into my eye. Like to live like this would feel like that. But then to do it so I can, with humility, come to my brothers and sisters in Christ and help them take the speck out of their eye. That I love them enough to take sin and the need for repentance seriously in my own life and theirs. And that I know God's word and them well enough that I know when to say something and when to just bear with them in love. That I'm willing to share the gospel with my friends, my family, my neighbors, my co-workers, and that I have the wisdom to know when to back off when they reject it. How is that even possible? Well, this is exactly what Jesus says later, again, talking about the same subject, when he says, with man, this is impossible. <laughs> But with God, all things are possible. And so this is why in the middle of this passage, Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is inviting us to see that it's impossible. That what he's calling us to here is impossible. 
And his answer is not, well, then pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go do it, or you might not be a Christian. His answer is, ask me. Ask me. This is not a blanket invitation to pray for whatever we want, as if God is a genie in a bottle, as some so-called Christian teachers proclaim. But we pray for our own holiness. We pray that God would work in the lives of other people that we know and love, and even people we don't know, that they too might come to know him. We pray for wisdom and strength and love and boldness as we love people as we would want them to love us if we didn't know God or if we were wandering from the truth. As Christians who know the mercy and forgiveness of God. And Jesus says, ask for this. Get up and seek it out. Beat down my door if you have to. Jesus is saying, keep at it, don't give up, come to God again and again for these things, and you will receive. You will find the door, and it will be open to you. I've heard people say that prayer doesn't change anything except you. You may have heard that saying before. And the idea here is that God is just so sovereign, and he's ordained all things, and so of course, if we pray to him, it's not going to change anything, because he's God, and he ordained everything, and so really the reason we pray is so that God will change us into the kind of people who, who know how to just sit back and accept life on God's terms as he intended it. Now, I do think there's truth to that, but that's insane, and that goes against everything Jesus is clearly saying here, Right? Jesus seems to think our prayers make a difference. He says, if you persistently come to your Father, seeking the heart and the strength to truly do for others what you would have them do for you if you were wandering from God or if you were a non-Christian, that he will grant this request. You see, God has ordained all things. But here's the mystery about prayer. One of the things that God has ordained or one of the means by which God accomplishes the things he ordained is through your prayer. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Yes, God has ordained everything. Right? He knows the beginning from the end. And he's ordained that you would pray, that his, his purposes would be accomplished. So when someone is sick, right? Like the people we prayed for silently today. We we can come. Right? Oh, I think about Anne. I'll talk, right? Keith's 94 years old. She just wants a few more days with him. <laughs> you, we can come to God and we can, we can ask him for that. And we can believe that, that that could make a difference, right? Otherwise, it would be pointless to pray. So Jesus goes on and says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Even though we are evil, we're still capable of giving good gifts to our children. So if even evil sinners like us give good gifts, how much more will a holy and perfect God give good gifts? And in this context, what's the good gift? It's our own holiness. It's, it's boldness to share. It's boldness to reach into the lives of others. It's that, it's that our efforts would be, 
would be received by them as it's intended by us, and they wouldn't think that we're judgmental. Right? This is how we begin to do to others what we would have them do to us. We come to our Father who wants to give us good gifts. We ask Him for the heart and the desire and the boldness to be holy and humble. And then we trust that He will answer this prayer because He says He will. And we begin to battle our own sin and as we do, He's going to humble us, right? We will look like people with eyes bleeding, holding giant planks of sin in our hands that we just ripped out of our eyes. And then Satan will come along and he'll tell us that we ought to be embarrassed. I can't believe it. Everyone knows that you're that big sinner now. Or you'll never be able to keep it up, right? How many of us have tried to stop whatever sinful struggle we struggle with the most, gone a couple days into it, and then been like, oh, this is too hard. That's Satan. We'll never be able to do it, he says. You might as well give up which actually should make us seek after Jesus even more and beat down his door if we have to. Are we beating down the door of heaven to be holy, humble, and bold? Let me ask that again. Are we beating down the door of heaven to be holy and humble and bold? As we experience God's forgiveness and mercy and his power in our own life, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. As we prayerfully seek holiness, we actually come to see that we are worse sinners than we thought we were. That's the funny thing about sin, right? As soon as we start fighting our sin, we actually discover that, it, that we're even worse than we thought. And so then we think like, well, this can't be right. <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't be fighting that because boy, I, it's making me think I'm worse than I thought I was. Well, yes, exactly. So you can know God's grace more than you ever thought. Not not so that you can condemn yourself, but so that you can realize just how much God loves you and was willing to do for you when you are really like that. As we prayerfully seek holiness, we become even more poor in the spirit We mourn more and more over our sin as we discover how deep it goes and how hard it is to root out and how much grace we actually need, not only to forgive our ongoing sin, but to empower a life of holiness. And here Jesus is promising to give this to us, which will make us want others to know that same grace too. And that makes us meek. It makes us hunger and thirst for even more righteousness. It makes us merciful and willing to endure persecution. Notice I'm going right back to the Beatitudes. He does this, right? If necessary, in order for us to see the gospel and to want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And as we do, as we do this with humility and without judgmentalism, we become the salt of the earth because that makes us the kind of people who make Jesus taste good. And we become the light of the world because unbelievers will begin to recognize that something supernatural is happening. Right? See, when Christians are like humble, eyes bleeding, holding our sin in our hands, reaching out for the speck, and, right? You, you don't condemn that person. You don't stand back and say, you self-righteous, judgmental. No, you, you think something supernatural is happening right here. There, there's no other way that somebody could be that humble, and holy at the same time. And this isn't radical Christianity I'm talking about. 
radical Christianity that's like a flash in the pan, that, that's like motivated by some pride and energy that we can't possibly keep up on our own, that, that doesn't do it. It's just ordinary, humble, steadfast faithfulness over time that speaks to the power of God more than flashes of radical Christianity. Let me close with this. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the beginning of the uh, gratitude section. The question is this. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? So question, why should I do unto others as I'd have them do unto me? Answer, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image. Notice, justification, sanctification, right? So that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits. His benefits are forgiveness and grace and glorification and all the wonderful things that we should want other people to have too. Because we don't lose any of it by giving it away. So that he may be praised through us so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. And listen to this. So that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Friends, this isn't the kind of godly living that is self-righteous. This is, I think, the kind of godly living, eyes bleeding, holding our sin in our hands, fighting with every fiber of our being to be holy, praying, beating down the door, right? And then helping each other do the same. To me, that kind of church is attractive. That kind of church is offering the world something the world so desperately needs. And my prayer is that we would be that kind of church. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're so grateful for your word. It is hard to hear, but it is sweet to our soul, God, to not only know that your forgiveness extends to the far end, and that as we're convicted by these words, we, we know all we need to do is turn to you and ask and seek and knock. Because you are our Father, and the door is open. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.